1: to the Backstory Podcast. I'm your host, Colby Colb. And today on the show, we have one of these people that I call a creative titan, an entrepreneur, a label leader, executive, uh, CEO, boss, and one of the few people in this business that really put a stamp in hip hop. And that is Mr. Steve Rifkin. Welcome to the Backstory, my friend. Man, thank you. Thank you. Good to see you, man. Listen, and I um, there's two things that that inspired me to talk to you because I've known you from I remember when you started your promotion company before you even had the label. Uh, because you had one of my classmates was Han Sol, which was one of the first artists that you had signed, yeah, so that's how I found out about you. And then you had my guy, uh, Fade Duvernay Fade. working for you. You know, we were all just kids, man, just kind of starting out in the business. But you have created uh, an, an incredible legacy and watching the BET Hip Hop Awards this year and they honored Loud Records. It really just brought back so much goosebumps because there was so much of a movement you created. So let's take a little walk back. You're from Long Island and you really have the music business in your blood because your father was a label owner. So talk a little bit about growing up in Long Island and your dad and uh, Spring Records. Right. That was the label that your dad had. Yeah, my dad had Spring Records.
2: I actually just revamped Spring with my son Alex, and it's called Spring Sound. But you know, growing up in Long Island, it was um, it was great. You know, my dad was in the music business. Um, you know, Rich Isaacson and my brother were my partners in in Loud. Rich lived around the corner from us. You know, and um, Loud was a spinoff of really the promotion company, which was the Stephen Rifkin Company. Yeah. But growing up, you know, with you know, I never knew what the day would bring. In Long Island, just who would be at the house, who would not be at the house. My father's going out of town, out of town, you know, and the characters that were going in and out of the house. Like, if the house going to get shot up, it's not going to get shot up. You know, it's just it's, you know, the, the childhood was truly amazing.
1: So, yeah, you, you had folks like James Brown, like your dad worked with a lot of really cool people. So, like, you must have seen a lot of great things just growing up. And was that the bug that that was like, I want to do this?
2: Nah man so I got the bug in my 20s but what happened was I was dyslexic as a kid mm-hmm. right so I didn't know how to read or write till I was 14 years old so you know I thought I was going to be a professional basketball player but at the end of the day I was getting in a lot of trouble and I was doing it I didn't need to do it to survive I mean I grew up you know privileged and um I was just doing it to get attention you know but it really was going to a a, a dark road and my grandfather, who was, you know, the leader of the whole family, called me down to Florida. And, you know, in, the, in those days, I was now around 17, 18. He was the only one I was truly petrified of. Right. And um he called me down to Florida and he says, you're going to end up dead or in jail. Like, I did it because I had to open up, you know, I just, you know, came from Europe and don't do what I do and that's not you i go well, what what should i do i'm not going to be a basketball player he didn't even you know he, didn't have, he, he wasn't a sports guy and he goes go do what your cousin did i'm like what what, what, what you know one's a lawyer but i'm like what does randy do and randy at that time was um i'm not saying head of promotion but he was a national promotion guy at um, polydor i go well what is that he goes they visit radio stations so i go. who's gonna like do that he goes i'll talk to your father and i'm like man, Grandpa, my dad ain't going to want you know, he's not going to trust me with anything. He he tries to lock me out of the fucking house, you know. Right. So, like, four or five days later, um, don't forget, there were no cell phones. This is 1979, and the house phone rang, and I answered the phone. He goes, go pick me up at the airport. I'm like, what do you mean? He goes, I'm landing in three hours. Pick me up at the airport. And um, I remember it was Eastern Airlines, and I pick him up. He says, we're going into the city so i I thought some um I thought they were allowing me in the family in his family business right i was I was so excited and we ended up just going to my dad and uncle's office and um they pretty much said we're gonna give you an opportunity and um you're gonna go on the road for like three weeks and you're gonna go visit radio stations and um I was like, all right, don't forget you know there was no GPS there wasn't anything it's like I had a call you know I had you know they gave me like worth of quarters or dimes, you know, so I could call you and say, hey, Cove, I'm in um, New Jersey, like, in you were in Philly. You know, like, how do I, you know, and I I so wish I had that notebook of every direction on what freeway to take and how to get from one station to another. So, make a long story short, that three weeks lasted three years, and that's when I, you know, I learned how to live on my own. I was living in hotels, and um, it was probably the happiest time of my life, and I stayed
1: out of trouble. So after that three years, is that when you start your own company or what, what, what's the next step for you?
2: Um, so I'm 21, 22 years old. My friends that I went to high school with um, were just graduating college. And a, and a friend of mine who is actually going to law school, Crush Groove came out. What year was Crush Groove?
1: That was 84? So I was
2: 22. And I called up Russell, I said, man, let's do a cartoon show. And Leor just started working with Russell and he goes, we meet with Leor, and you know, I had a huge, huge record with Russell, um, Jimmy Spice of Dollar Bill, y'all I think it was one of his first hit records. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. That was on Spring. So Leo would, I think, just moved to New York, and it was tough to chase down. And In the meantime, um, the guy who I went to law school with ended up getting a meeting with Rankin and Bass, which had a cartoon, had the biggest cartoon show on I TV, Jack Thunder and Thundercats.
1: Yeah, yeah, and
2: um. We sold them on an idea, but they didn't want them to be, they wanted the rappers to be frogs so they could be colorless. So for whatever reason, and it was called the Street Frogs. We got jerked a little bit, but we sued them and we won a little bit of money. Nothing crazy. And then um, that was really the start of it, where I was just doing my own thing. And then um, Hiram Hicks was coming to New York after we just won the uh, lawsuit, like a year later or a year and a half later. It was a quick settlement yeah and um he had mike bivens with him and i said well just uh let's meet at my dad's office was i didn't know where to to meet and um i introduced him to my dad and my uncle and they said you know they asked mike who's managing you guys and he says well that's why we're here we're looking for a manager and um make a long story short we ended up managing new edition i brought in my father and and uncle just because they had the experience me and Hiram were like i said 22 23 years old and um we were about to make the any heartbreak album
1: I remember when Hiram was just a photographer.
2: Photographer, he was, Lady <laughs> B, he was Lady B's boyfriend.
1: Yeah, yeah. No, I remember those times. That's when I yeah. first got into the business. That he was a photographer. Yeah. yeah.
2: And I ended up moving to L.A. and that's how really everything pretty much started. I needed money to um, support myself because we were, you know, I saw we saw a little bit of money w- with the guys, but you know, they were really just recording. There was no tour happening yet and stuff like that. And I was I was learning a lot and hanging out at MCA all day um you know and then i met a guy by the name of cliff winston and yeah. a woman named eleanor williams and they wanted to do a show with new edition for um, halloween and i became like an indie on the west coast just for kjlh and I, I did okay made a little bit of money and i just and then i hooked up with a company called delicious vinyl and that's when things started to take off for me promotion-wise
1: yeah delicious vinyl was uh, uh tone Loc, tone you know, Loc, and, and young mc, MC. yeah that yeah. that was massive but yeah brand new
2: heavies too and, and yeah happening with Def jeff yeah so it was amazing and you know my first day working up there tone low i guess mike owed him mike ross owed him a little bit of money nothing not you or whatever but you know he came he came strapped and he was like yo where's my money i'm like who are you like if you want your money what are you gonna you gonna use that on me? He goes, yeah. Right. Friend, you'll never get paid. Like right. so, it's like, let me call him. You know, and then Mike came to the office and whatever money Mike you know promised them, you know, they got. And to this day, Mike is you know one of you know still a really close friend of mine.
1: When you were doing this, is this when you had the the promotion company?
2: Yeah. So this was yeah, this was all the Stephen Rifkin company, right? So got it. That, that's where that's where Fade came in, and Fade's wife was my girlfriend's sister at the time. Got it. Fade's future wife. Yeah. So it was just me, Fade, and Lisa. And we were in a little office, you know, where Fade worked in the main room. I worked. I had a little closet as an office and a bathroom. And that's when we put the whole street team together. And I took my last $3,000 and I sent it to um, every record company, like from president on down. And uh, I was going to New York for the holidays. And after the holidays, I was going to stay in New York. And I came back you know, with over six figures worth of business. And that's when we really kicked in.
1: Yeah, and Fade would call me every week. It was like I had an appointment with him. And that's yeah. how I knew what SRC was. Like, like he, would make, he would call every week about, you guys had a ton of records.
0: Life is so much more than a diagnosis. It's about sharing time with those you love, hanging with friends who lift you up, and experiencing all those moments that bring you joy. All hits, no skips. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at kisqal and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you. So long live singing to the oldies, jamming out to something new, and everything in between.
1: So then when did you get the bug to just kind of create your own label?
2: I didn't want the label. So I, I'm making six figures now. So I think I'm making, you know, I think I'm making a fortune. So we had the office and... We would close the office from three o'clock which we were on the west coast to 530. I would go to the park to play ball We'd meet back at the office at six there was a restaurant called Johnny Rockets right across the street from where we are we would order in some food we would do out we would send out daily reports every single day and we would work back at the office from like six to nine o'clock and and start all over again the next day so I was cool I was making six figures I was playing ball had a hot girlfriend and like, I was in New York for my cousin's wedding and I was working at a Jerry Yates office who had a famous artist agency. And um, he goes, why don't you have your label? I was like, man, I don't want a label. I'm, I'm good. Like I'm brokering deals. I'm doing this. I'm doing that. He goes, well, why don't you meet with this lawyer anyway? By the name of Paul Marshall. And Paul was my dad's attorney. And, um, they just sold spring at the time. So my dad was doing radio, independent radio on a national basis. And, um, I met Paul. He said I could get you this deal at BMG. They're starting this new label called Zoo Entertainment. Lou Malia, let him rest in peace. Um, it's gonna run. And I knew Lou. He was head of Ireland, and that's where Delicious Vinyl was going through. So I didn't know him well, but I knew him, and he was just a great, great guy. And because um, I don't have a lot of money, I'm like, man, I don't need a lot of money. Like I'll get this thing up to a hundred thousand, and then you guys kick in. Just help me, give me, you know, some money to make the records, and so I could sign the artists. But Before that, like I said, I didn't want the label, and I told that to Paul, and Paul called my dad. So I'm staying at Rich's apartment in New York, and um, my dad calls Rich's apartment, and he's like, you gotta come to the house. So I'm like, oh, fuck, something happened now, right? right?" So I'm like, dad, it's nine o'clock, he goes, take the fucking train, and if you know my dad, my dad was the nicest guy in the world, but when he got serious, I mean, you know, I I couldn't say, no, I'll see you tomorrow. Right. So I I I take the train, so I uh, get there around 11 o'clock, you know, and he's waiting for me and he's with two of his, I don't know what the fuck, you, you know, I don't if a body guy. I don't know what the fuck they were, but, they were, you know, two of his guys and um, he goes, are you a fucking idiot? I'm like, you've told me this before. I'm like, I, I must be. I'm like, what do I do now? He goes, you turned down a label deal? And I'm like, what are you talking about? I go, there was no deal. I met with an attorney. He goes, yeah, you met with Paul. Paul called me, says you don't want a label. He goes, let me explain something to you. He goes what you're doing now, you're only as good as your last contract with a label. You can make money while you're sleeping. And it's probably the first time in my life because I was so stubborn and so crazy that I agreed with him. I said, you know what, dad, you're right. I think he almost shit on himself. And, um, he goes, can I leave now? He goes, no, you're going to spend the night and we're going to go into the city. We're seeing Paul tomorrow at two o'clock. I'm like, what do you mean we're seeing him tomorrow at two o'clock? Cause I already called him and I told him I would deal with this. So, make a long story short, we see Paul at two o'clock and two weeks later I had a, a label, um, it was zoo entertainment, which was owned by BMG. A month later, um, I asked rich, rich was a lawyer working at a major, major law firm. And he was miserable being a lawyer. I said, why don't you come, come to LA and work and work with me? Cause you're great at everything that I can't do. And, um, I got the label, I got the promotion company and, um, he left, you know. The, the Christmas came, end of the year, and you know, beginning of the year. You know, he, he, Rich came, and it was me, Rich Fade, a guy by the name of Michael Green, M's, a kid by the name of Garner, and then there was another guy by the name of Rob One. Let him rest in peace. Um, he, he passed. And Lisa, that's when everything started. We put out the um, Twister was our first artist out of Chicago.
1: Yeah,
2: um, we had Madcap out of L.A. and and the Licks. And the Licks at the time was our biggest group.
1: Yeah that was sort of your foundation to, to kind of get started and then talk a little bit about when, well, what did the, the loud, what was loud? Uh, the so, name?
2: so that, so loud, we were, the original offer that before we went with zoo, I thought I was going to do a deal with days off and his label was called, um, giant. Right. So Fade came with the name loud. We did a lot of work with, um, Hank shot label, which was so yeah. sound of yeah. urban listeners. Yep. And we decided we're going to call ours Listeners of Bourbon Dialer. Got it. And then Loud came, you know, and we had like, you know, the first three was Twister, Madcap, and The Licks. And in between all that, Zoo ran out of money and we, we hit our numbers. And Skip Miller and Ron Urban um, said, Why don't you come to RCA, which was through BMG anyway? And they offered us a little bit more money. And as great as Skip and Ron was, you know, one of the real reasons why we went there, there was a guy who, you know, by the name of Mojo Nicosia.
1: Yeah.
2: And um, Mojo just had the energy, and he, he understood us. Like, we never worked records together, like, you know, but we were always, like, six, you know, inches away from, you know, whatever, six degrees of, of separation. Yep. And I've always heard great things about him. When I met him, I was like, man, he's one of us, or we're one of him, you know. And it was like, he, you know, he became our godfather at, at RCA, and then when Wu Tang came, you know, it was like, you know, he, he emptied out his budget for us, you know, and then he went on the road with the guys and we hired more, a little bit more people. But it was, you know, and Mojo, you know, he became my brother and like, you know, just family. And we did whatever we had to do to win.
1: Well, I'm glad you brought, uh, you sagged into Wu Tang because um, did you, have you been watching the Wu uh, show on Hulu? Of course. Okay, so so is it it, how accurate is that um, the signing of uh, of the group? And um, I I know that they had a history of trashing hotel rooms. So did you really bring them to a BMG conference to introduce them and they trashed the hotel room? Did did that really happen?
2: Oh, yeah. So not not only did they trash the hotel room, I think they trashed the fucking hotel. Yeah. So you, you have all of corporate data, right? First of all, this is—they rented out like an old age home. I mean, it was the—it was a, a crazy night, and you had all the Germans in the front row, and Dirty comes out with his legs over like sitting at the edge of the stage, like with his legs over, and he starts singing "Somewhere Over the Rainbow," before anybody, and um, they come running out with water guns and ski masks, like when the when protecting that kid, and the fucking five liters of BMG worldwide. Fall to the floor, <laughs> and and Mojo's with me. He's literally to my right. Rich is on the other side. My brother John's is not even with us yet. And um, and we just laughed. And Mojo goes, "Why don't you tell me these guys had this type of energy? Let's fucking go." And he was the only one who wasn't scared.
1: Right. So, but you saw what? What was it that you saw or heard from them? that made you, cause you were really the linchpin to, like you were aggressive to get them and you didn't have the big budgets like all the other labels.
2: Nah, nah, and but, you but, had what, to keep- Sorry for cutting your off But Well, what I had was I had the experience of understanding what rap was, you know, my, we put out the first rap record. Yeah. With Fatback Band, Kington the third. We had a Jimmy Spicer record. I already saw two records cross over to number one records on the pop charts with Tone Loke and, and, and Young MC and we had the streets. I mean, my you know, nobody had a, a street team then really. And that's as you know, I mean, we would Fay would call you with like what, 20 records, 15 records. 20 records at, at any yeah. at at any given fucking time. So, the only thing I you know, I, I promised Driza was I don't have the money, but what I'm going to do is just attack the streets. And I said, I'll come to New York for the summer. I was living in that that started in LA. I came to New York. He would show up at the office every single day with a notepad. He said, these are the things that we have to do. Like, I think we should put a street team in Cincinnati. So we would hire somebody. He goes, why are you saying yes to everything I'm asking for? And I said, because it's making sense. I wasn't, like, playing. And, like, the, we we had success with the alcoholics. Even though I was living in L.A. I'm from New York, man. It's like I had ha- I had to have something in New York. My family was right. still there, you know. Right. And, and, that, and that was it. Trevor Williams who started off as an intern and a promotion guy for me. He's the one that found the guys through Jason Staten, who was a college radio DJ out of Flint, Michigan. That's how yeah. we found the record.
1: And so you, you get, you get Wu Tang on and you craft a deal, which is actually kind of a brilliant deal that you sign them as a group, but they could go elsewhere and sign solo deals. And you got a couple of them on solo deals, but you could tap into the marketing of all these other companies for Wu-Tang, like, it was just brilliant. Like, I, I mean, yeah, did you know so, that that's what you were doing? Well, th- this is what I knew. I knew the group is always bigger than the solo,
2: right? Except maybe if you're Michael Jackson and a Jackson 5, right? right? But, but at the end of the day, like, when Mick Jagger went solo, he wasn't bigger than the Rolling Stones. When John Lennon went solo, he wasn't bigger than the Beatles. I even think when Justin Timberlake went solo, I still think NSYNC might have been bigger, you know, and just – Michael was Michael, and I was taking the chance that the group would have still been bigger than the whole. And right. it, as as you just said five minutes ago, it gave us the opportunity to deal with every label who signed. If it was if it was Wendy Goldstein signing Jiza and Tracy Waples and Lior signing Meth and Sylvia and Merlin, I think it was Merlin, Mer, Merlin, not not Merlin, um, Merlin, Sylvia, and Dante Ross.
1: No oh, Dante Ross, okay,
2: signing yep. signing Dirty. I You know, and they were paying me a shitload of money to promote these records. And to like
1: So so you were you were still doing a promotion while you had Loud and it was taking off?
2: Yeah. I was I I had the promotion company up until nineteen ninety nine when I sold loud to Sony and that's when I had to stop it and I had to sell the promotion company.
1: Okay, so that that makes all the sense in the world. So you were you were able to really kind of get them going. And the first album was a phenomenal success. That would probably be the the big lift that you got. Did, did, did things change yeah. between you and BMG you know, when yeah, that album was, came out? Man, when that that album
2: came out, what? November 9th, 1990, 1993, <laughs> right? Yep. <laughs> and by the time Raekwon's album came, which was August 1995, I might have changed the deal five times. But that time, I must have changed the deal three times alone, just with Wu-Tang. And then we came with the Mob Deep record and the Flex record. Like, every time we had a smell of a hit, we were coming in. I mean, they hated us.
0: Life is so much more than a diagnosis. It's about sharing time with those you love, hanging with friends who lift you up, and experiencing all those moments that bring you joy. All hits, no skips. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at kisqal and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you. So long live singing to the oldies, jamming out to something new, and everything in between.
1: Yeah.
2: I mean, they hate us and love us at the same time.
1: Yeah. Let's talk about Mob Deep, though, because Mob Deep was on island at first, and they were like little kids. I remember them because yeah. they had hit it from the back. Yep. And you signed them, but you tapped into something with them that was just undeniable, like, success. Like, they were the streets, I guess, as you say. But their uh, and it probably started with Havoc. But their beats, their energy, their vibe, I mean, they were a special type of group. Talk a little bit about why you got them from Island and how that, went, how that came about. Island released them, and then I just
2: hired um, – at that time, I already hired a guy by the name of Stretch Armstrong who was a huge DJ in New York. Stretch and barbito, was, yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Stretch and Barbito. And then um, he said, you know, these guys are, are clear. And then Stretch introduced me to a guy by the name of Scott Free. And then Free introduced me to Maddie C, who was working for the sauce. And th- they became my nucleus of my A&R team. You know, Maddie had the unsigned type at the sauce. And, like, you know, he's the one that really found Biggie and gave Biggie the puff. So... The three of them, like, were just, you got to sign him, you got to sign him. And then when I met Hav, just how he came in prodigy, you know, let him rest in peace, had sickle cell, he was sick. So Hav came, you know, with, with the crew and they created havoc. No, you know, just like in the building, we were working at a bar see, in New York. And um, I was like, this is going to be the perfect follow-up for Wu-Tang.
1: And I also think uh, it was funny that you put, you, you, your little brother became, Part of the label and you sent him on the road with mob deep and i'll never forget uh they, they did a promo date for me in philly I, there's this really gr- grimy club in uh and in, in downtown philly called the fever it was just wild in there and so like they were in the vip area and they were watching
2: well it was him and mojo on the right yeah yeah yeah, yeah. they were together yeah. they were they were at each other's hip 24 seven
1: yep yeah. and 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 so the guys were watching the kids fighting and then they started fighting amongst themselves because they were like, oh, we want to fight. And then we put them in a hotel room. And I don't know how they did this or whatever, but like half the bathroom door was missing. <laughs> and Jonathan was so stressed because they weren't paying him no mind. And I was like, oh man, your brother set you up. He, he set you up. And that was the first project with them. But then they came and and and, and had tremendous success. And um, one other story too about, about you so when you first got Wu-Tang and you signed them, there was two moments that I remember. One, you sent them to um, the Impact Convention in Atlantic City. and nah, Sincere, nah,
2: so I, I, I didn't send them. They went on their own. because it was just a single day. And Sincere gave them the fucking credit card. And yeah.
1: Sincere called yeah. me
2: like, on Monday and Tuesday. He goes, are you going to pay me back? I'm like, for what? He goes, did you spend $70,000 or $80,000 on my credit card ordering lobster, champagne? I'm like, Sincere. Yeah, I have no idea what the fuck you're talking about. <laughs> I, can't,
1: I, can't, he to, I, I just happened to be with him the next morning when he found out that uh, he he basically let them in the room and they just ordered a bunch of shit in the room. Trashed yeah. the room, but ordered everything that you could imagine. And he was just so stressed. But then I also, when they first came affiliate to Philly, when I interviewed them and I shared this on the, my podcast episode about them, they trashed the radio station. They You put them in a But not you, but whoever put them in a van in Staten Island and left New York at like four o'clock on a Friday. Of course, the traffic was insane to get to Philadelphia. They get to Philly. They haven't eaten. So we have a vending machine and they just annihilate the vending machine. It's just shit all up and down the hallway. And it was the day before Hiram's wedding because you sat next to my boss, Dave Allen, who gave you an earful about what they did the, the night before at the station. Um, and then a couple of years later, ODB on the eve of his his uh, debut album, solo album, he's drunk, shows up to the station, spills Alize all in my board at eleven o'clock at night. I mean, I've got so many Wu Tang stories that like I I probably should have lost my job because I, because these guys were out of control. But how did you all like harness that energy and keep your sanity because it was always something between Mob Deep and and Wu Tang. I mean. You know, this
2: is where I really take my hat off to my dad. He goes, "Like I, I would, I, I would, I would get nuts." He goes, "Steven, what did you do? You robbed, you stole, you trashed." Like it, 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 it's, it's patience. I mean, you know, it wasn't a lot of money that they got, but they got money legitimately for the first time, and they weren't doing it harm. I mean, they weren't doing it out of evilness. They were doing it just. They became rock stars. Right. You know, right. and it's and it's not like you know they didn't become stars after their third single, they became <laughs> a star fucking immediately. Rizza and Jizza took a minute. You know, when Rizza was signed to Tommy Boy and Jizza was signed to Cold Chillin', but at the end of the fucking day, it was like, are you allowed to curse? Yeah. Uh, okay. You've um, been cursing the whole time. Oh. I got you. <laughs> <laughs> so it was like you know it, it 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 happened so quick for all of us. Like you know, one day. It was like, boom. And, you know, and the next day, you know, we're talking about millions of dollars.
1: So talk about the setup for the second Wu-Tang album, which was probably one of the most anticipated hip hop albums up to that point in 97. It was a double album. I couldn't I can only imagine you and your preparedness for releasing that album, how massive you knew that it was going to be for the for your company.
2: I was getting married in July, July 3rd, 1997. And um the fiscal year for BMG I was at the end it went from, you know, July 1st to the end of June. We gave our word to BMG that we would drop the album. So I think I forget when the album came out, say June 23rd or June 17th. And but before that the negotiation was not a crazy negotiation, but you know, we were supposed to be negotiating against each other. But me and RZA said, no, we're going in together. Because I already told you, I already changed my deal three or four times. Right. And we were $20,000 away from um, closing the Raekwon deal. And BMG was holding their ground. And I um, I said, just give them the fucking money. And there was a woman. I never hit a woman in my life. I still haven't. And she goes, Stephen Rifkin, I'm tired of your shit. Go fuck yourself. And we're in the 36th floor. And she was head of business affairs for Forest a. We're in the 36-floor conference room, and I still had my temper. And I take a chair, and I'm ready to throw it through the window, but that's facing Broadway, you know, like ah, And I stopped it. I dislocated my thumb. I stopped the chair, and I turned around, and I threw it through the glass door facing the hallway. She freaked out. She called the cops. I got arrested, and I just found out my future wife was pregnant with my first son four or five days. So I was probably a little stressed about that too. Right. And Riza said, well, he called me that night when I got home. And he says, we're gonna sign with you. Let's play it out for the holidays and let's just milk them. And it worked to perfection, you know, where Riza got really what, what he wanted for Ray, which was 400000 dollars more, and then he got millions for the second album. And like I said, and then I changed my shit around. And then when I got when we signed the deal for um the second album fully. That's when I got the biggest check of my life, too. And um, so that was a story in itself. And then the guys came out to L.A. to make the record, a double album, as you said. And we, I thought the setup was amazing. We um, locked up a tour with Rage Against the Machine. And I was like, all right, this is going to be the perfect tour. And, I, and it wasn't going to really be your opening act, because but it, when they came on, the place was already sold out. We were doing like right. 25,000 outdoor sheds. And I just figured the album was going to do 12 to 14 million and it was a double album. So it was good, you know, you double that. So I was thinking it was going to do 28, you know, to 30 million. And we're doing my prenup at the same time. And they were like, you know, I'm expecting this amount of money to come in. And I mean, it was just a fucking, it was, it was really just a clusterfuck. And then they jumped off the tour because they weren't getting, they saw all the money that they were getting. I mean, not the money they were getting. They weren't getting a lot of money for the tour, but they saw the crowds. And as we were going into the Midwest and cities that they'd never been before, that's when everything, and it was starting to kick in. We were averaging 200,000 a week. There's really no more sound scan, but we were averaging 2000 fucking a, a week sales. And they, I uh, said, we're not doing the tour anymore. But so we still did crazy numbers. We still did $10 million at, at the end of the day, which was equivalent to shit $100 million.
1: Then at that point, like a couple years later, you end up selling the company. What, what, what made you decide to finally do that in 1999? I really didn't want to do it.
2: But they were so numbers-based. I had the best record company in the world at that time, creatively-wise, music-wise. You know, Jimmy, I mean, was... One of my mentors and, you know, Interscope was one of my biggest accounts. Right. And he kept on saying, fuck the bottom line. Just worry about the top line. They're making so much fucking money off you. You know, it doesn't even matter. So when they said, you know, we want more profits, I was like, fuck you. Because they already fucked us on money regarding my my prenup. And I'm like, I'm not worrying about profits. I'm just, I got to build this company. Well, we'll let you guys go then. And, you know, Tommy came. He goes, I want to buy, he bought 70% of the company, but you got to run this, since we're making this the third major inside the Sony system, Right. you got to run this full-time. You can't have your marketing company. It was the greatest thing and the biggest mistake of my life all at the same time.
1: Why was it the biggest mistake? Sony
2: was just too corporate. We went from like 35 of the most creative people in the business to fucking 300 people in a day, and it was just like. People were call, I'm 37 years old, people were calling me Mr. Rifkin, and I was just like, I cried, like, and it wasn't out of happiness, so it was like, I made the biggest mistake of my life.
1: So then then you eventually leave the situation, right?
2: Yeah, I left where I got fired, or I, whatever it was, but I, you know, my contract was up, and um, I started SRC Records with Doug and Melo Winter and Monty Lipman and Kadar Massenburg.
1: Yeah. Now yeah, what kind of was that a really good did were you did you learn from your loud days? So that deal, was that a much better favorable deal to you? No, because I had the reputation of not
2: giving a shit because Jimmy told me I didn't give a shit about the fucking bottom line. Jimmy became a corporate guy after fucking listening to right. him. So <laughs> I just said I'm not matching dollar for dollar, but I'm gonna put you know, I'm gonna have my own skin in the game too. You know, it's like when I told them Akon will be the biggest artist of my career, they laughed in my face. And I said, you know, I still had my temper. I was like, "Fuck you!" And me at that time, my right hand was a guy by the name of Gabi Acevedo. Yeah, and Gabi took Akon and did his wife was pregnant at the time. He did the East Coast and the Northeast, and I did the West Coast and then you know the Southwest or Northwest with Akon's brother Boo. And then we didn't have a video at the time, so nobody knew what Akon looked like, and we were just doubling down on dates and. The record broke out of Albuquerque, New Mexico and Utah at some rhythm stations. We locked up. Before
1: that, you had David Banner, though. David Banner was a formidable
2: artist. artist. Yeah, I mean, he had the record. It was was funny, Little Flip was the last thing I signed to Loud. And Banner, you know, with The Like a Pimp, had Little Flip on the record.
0: Life is so much more than a diagnosis. It's about sharing time with those you love, hanging with friends who lift you up, and experiencing all those moments that bring you joy. All hits, no skips. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at kisqal and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you. So long live singing to the oldies, jamming out to something new, and everything in between.
1: And then you had um, Terra Squad, which... You know, in 2004, uh, "Lean Back" was one of the biggest. That's still one of the biggest hip hop records ever. Talk a little bit about that deal with Fat Joe because he was an Atlantic artist. So you uh, you you signed yeah, so, uh, T- Terra Squad so, as a. So yeah, so don't forget, it, we had
2: major success with Joe, with Punt.
1: right? So Correct.
2: Me, 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 and Joe. You know, we became family overnight. I mean, I don't even know how people knew, but like, I was I was in Chicago when I met him over the phone. And um, by the time the meeting was, like, the following Tuesday, people were saying, don't take a meeting with him. He's a bad guy. He's an extortionist, this, that, or whatever. I was like, nah, fuck that. Like, I just loved his energy on the phone. And when he came to the office, I was like, let me talk to you privately for a second. I told him. And um, I said, it it doesn't scare me. And, you know, I I respect the gangster. you know, because all they have is their work. And we, we hit it off. He was fighting with Atlantic at the time, and... He said, let me just. He called me and he says, I want to do this Terrace Blood album, this, that, or whatever. He goes, Where are you? I said, LA. I said, I'll come to New York. I'll meet you in New York. He was in Miami and he played me three or four songs. Lean Back was one of them. And it was just like,
1: I knew, you know, that we were going to have history again. Yeah. Did you enjoy the second run with Universal more than the uh, the loud run, initial loud run? Or was that. Something that just can't be replaced for you career-wise.
2: I mean, it, was, it was two different things, right? So Loud was truly the coolest label that you could possibly think of, right? The, the people that worked for it, everything else like that. SRC was a little bit more corporate and a lot smaller because we relied on Universal for a lot of stuff. Right. But we still had a great creative team. It was me, Gabby Acevedo. Rich came back. Isaacson came back. My brother came back. Jason Campana, who I think is now head of title, started off as my assistant and ended up as our GM. Matt Maroney, Kirk Harding, who was head of international at Lab, came as like our head of marketing and, you know, and we just had a real, I mean, it was like a staff of 10 to 12 people and, but it was was cool and we had like, they gave us a, a whole section on the seventh floor
1: at the Universal Building. Do you find after you've had, all? I mean, you, most people can't do what you did one time, but you did it two times in two different systems. Did you, do you find that you now provide counsel to a lot of the other people that have tried to follow those blueprints and start their own labels and especially in the hip hop space?
2: Knowledge is power, right? So if I can help you do it, you know, then it's more power for me. I'm not, you know, I'm not the type of guy that keeps um, keeps everything inside of me. So, I'm, a, I'm really about, if I could help you and eventually if I need something a favor out of you, knowing the type of person you are, you're going to be able to help, you know, me if I, if I, if I need something. So, I was always open to sharing as much information as possible. To this day, like, my Karen, when he left Atlantic, called me, um, like, four or five months before he called. And he was like, you know, and I didn't charge him, I didn't do anything. I was like, Mike, this is what you got to do,
1: right? You know,
2: right. and he put, you know, he put his two cents and his own spin on it.
1: But that's, you know, what we did. What do you think of music today? What do you think? What happen to the music business? Um, you know, if if you could look at uh, how things work today and how much money is generated, you know, what do you think about it? I mean,
2: I, I'm I'm ecstatic for Coach and P. I'm, ec- I'm ecstatic for Top Dog. I'm ecstatic for NBA Young Boy. You know, I don't personally. Like, on some of the records, I personally, I don't understand it, you know, <laughs> yeah. but but at the end of the day, you know, I'm in it. So yeah. do I need to really understand it anymore? I mean, that's why I got my sons, you know, my daughter, you know, and I got a great, you know, nucleus of friends around me that help me. You know, there's a guy by the name of Dana Bionde who manages the Suicide Boys, you know, and they're the biggest independent streaming artist out there, you know, and I'm, you know, and like I said, you're never too old to learn. Right, right, so you know, the one thing I have going for is, um, like my nucleus, you know, I, mojo is still you know part part of this spring sound and he's mentoring my son, you know, my son played college basketball, so he's p- pretty disciplined, you know and and his work ethic is really second to none. you know, my daughter's going to be going to law school and eventually she'll be running the company. And my youngest son, you know, he put out a record around a year and a half ago himself and he got it up to a million to two million streams but he wants to take a different path but creatively you know he's he's still with us so yeah so i'm open to, to just listen i'm not, i don't have the answers anymore but i could give it you know how it was back in the day and but i'm more about listening and just asking questions now and, and finding the records that i think
1: could go but if you think about it steve what you just said about you know like you didn't understand it like that's what people would say about loud i mean you signed dead presidents people listen to that and they dead prayers they were like what is that you signed uh out of memphis uh three six uh yeah three six mafia i mean just that whole nobody was touching that but you saw something there and you was like oh i, I can do something and then these guys win a freaking oscar like that's yeah. insane there's luck my instinct, you know,
2: I don't know what you want to call, it, but you know, I, I got a kid now. Like, Club, I, I don't like. I, I sit here and I go to my like. Who can I fucking call? And he's like, chill, relax. Like, and I sit here twiddling my thumbs all day, frustrated, trying to do more. It's like, man, j- just relax. So they called me like three weeks ago to call somebody to see if you know we could get a playlist. You know, and I and I and I and I got the playlist. And, you know, this kid, in the beginning, the beginning, in the beginning of the year, he had maybe 20 followers on TikTok. Now he is close to 400,000. He had zero monthly listeners on Spotify. And we're closing in on 200,000 now. And the kid's going to break. But back in the day, I could tell you the exact time and when he would break. Right Now I, I just sit here, like, waiting for Alex, my son, or somebody to call me and say, hey, it's go time. So that's really what it is. So I'm I'm mentoring Alex. I, you know, I tell him old stories. He loves to hear stories about my dad, you know, so, but you know, we're working, Or he's really working and I'm just trying to figure this shit out as we go now.
1: Well, Steve, man, thank you so much for giving me some time today. I mean, I just had an honor of just watching you and watching this whole thing happen in real time and interacting with you all uh along this journey and uh I'm glad that you got your flowers on the BET hip hop awards. That was a massive moment and it gave me literally gave me goosebumps just seeing one label that could create all of that kind of energy. And then we didn't even talk about pun. So then you had pun which was massive and then you uh you know start another label and do it all over again and have an artist like Akon um, it's pretty impressive, man, and uh, what what a great legacy. And we just look forward to seeing what you and your family do uh, down the line, and uh, you know, just keep sharing this information, man. Because what an amazing story. We need the Steven Rifkin movie. We need the Loud movie. We got a we're, documentary. We're, we're, we need we're, to see it. We're, we're working on some things. We're working got on it. some things. We need and to see. Gotta, I was gonna say we need to see this, man. We yeah, got to we got to see it play out. You got to thank Riza for that. Yeah. So Club it was great seeing it. I think the last time I saw you
2: was in the Bahamas
1: yeah 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 you was with uh gabrielle union and essence atkins because my daughter was like um she was like a year old but she's like 16 and in college now so that shows you how long that long it's been yeah for sure but listen man great to see you and uh congratulations and thanks for doing the backstory no man this was great a lot of fun coming up on the next backstory podcast musical legend Ron Isley.
2: The Beatles did Twist and Shout. That was our second biggest set. And we went over in England and uh, we came back and went to Motown and did this whole heart of mine and wanted to have our own thing like Barry Gordy. And we decided because we lived in Teaneck, New Jersey,
1: Teaneck Records. The Backstory Podcast with Kobe Cole is an Urban One Incorporated Reach Media Pod is Good production, hosted and executive produced by yours truly, Kobe Cole. Edited by Donkus. Follow us on Twitter at Backstory PCC on Instagram. Get the Backstory. Senior Director of Podcast Operations Sierra Reed for Sales and Corporate Partnerships Josh Romani and Michelle Marino. Digital Marketing Walter Gainer, J.R. Smith, and Tim Hall. Thanks again for listening to the Backstory Podcast.